The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. And now for something completely different. Hey, I was, I'm a Hall of Famer. I'm in three Halls of Fame. For the young fans, they don't give a damn. They just give a damn about themselves and what they're hearing now. And I got no problem with those rules. I know the rules going in. I'm happy to play the game that way. And when Ivan came off with that uh, knee drop from the top rope and he bent me, I thought that something happened. I couldn't hear a thing. You could have heard the pin drop in that arena. It touched me so deeply that when I went in the dressing room, I really felt depressed. I'll tell you that, I'll tell you right to his face. If it's Hogan and I, if he wanted to get in a real street fight with me, trust me, he would lose, and he knew it. You know, that's the other thing. They give you the belt, and they're like, okay, you're in charge of me. I was like, what? When you mentioned a guy like Harley Race, that kind of legendary status, it's obvious why people would get upset. Or as I'm concerned, Roddy Piper was not a wrestler. He wasn't even a good worker. If he had to go out and work his way to the top and not have good friends like Jim Barnett. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying he's not a good guy. He's just not a tough guy. Bro, I swear to you, I don't have an ego. Like, I don't give a crap. I, that stuff is not important to me. People don't know me. They have no idea of who I am. They know of me as being a fictional character that they saw on TV. People didn't understand that, you know, the guy they saw in the ring that happened to be using his real name and happened to actually be the president of the company, they really believed that that guy that they loved to hate was actually a pretty decent guy. And I think many people have the perception that I really was that character. Hello and welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. I am your host, JP John Paz. With me today, very special guest, producer, a drummer, a songwriter, the man behind WCW Slam Jam, and, excuse me, Slam Jam, and of course, the man behind Bad Street USA, an honorary member of the Fabulous Freebirds. He is Mr. Jimmy Papa. Welcome to the two-man power trip. How are you doing? Thank you, John, and uh, I'm excited about being on your podcast and I hope to over deliver in every way and make this one of your best and most exciting. So what's going on in your world? What have you been up to? Well, um, you mean in the past a couple of weeks or in the past several years or. Well, since you kind of maybe been out of the limelight a little bit, like what, what's like, what is your, uh, your day to day life like? Um, Day-to-day is working on uh, uh, putting a new uh, Bad Street uh, website up, which is under construction right now. And uh, basically, I have a over a half a terabyte of footage that has been in my vault since 1983 or subsequently whenever it was shot you know 84 85 89 but the fact is none of it has ever been shown and i have shoot interviews with like buddy roberts i've got uh me and michael on vacation in hawaii i've got all kinds of behind the scenes uh, parties that I had at my house. 
and I've got some pretty amazing stuff and it's all been digitized or let's say 85% of it's been digitized. And uh, so they're just starting to, that's a huge project going into all that because that's hours and hours and hours. I uh, did a documentary um, while I was producing, writing and playing drums and negotiating with my attorney, the Slam Jam album with Ted Turner's people for WCW. I also did a documentary uh, and shot most of it myself and because we did it in my recording studio and and uh so i have eight hours of us in the studio recording that album Whoa. and uh that is some pretty interesting footage you know watching the musicians watching the singers you know i had uh the singer from john cougar mellencamp uh Pat Peterson, who sang lead on uh, Rick Rude's song, and uh, some of the other songs that just really popped, man. I've got really good footage of that. And so all that stuff's gonna be edited together along with, you know, some wrestling clips. And, uh, and that's just one thing, you know, we had a Freebird golf tournament uh, probably around 1990, um, and uh, I've got that on. Uh, that's digitized, and so just various stuff like that. So uh, Dan Bynum was in town, and he directed the Bad Street video. So uh, I'm going to be working with Dan and going through the footage and just there's so many things with the t-shirts the and uh, all the other memorabilia which other people have been selling and uh, that's another thing I have to go after legally and uh, um, I'll sign licensing agreements with them but they have to catch up on what they've sold over the last seven eight however many years you know they've been doing yeah. it so what are you should... planning on doing with all the footage and stuff though are you going to release it oh yeah you know uh what i'd like to do is uh set up a thing where people could uh join the website and get uh like a a weekly um show you know a podcast but also um you know and i mean for not a lot of money like maybe 2.99 i don't know you know not something that's going to drag people down but give them uh a chance to boom you know hey now comes along the slam jam thing and the next thing, oh, you could see the Freebird golf tournament. And the next thing, so in addition to the podcast and, you know, 
being a member club, you know, give them a discount on everything they buy. And then in addition to that, they get to see all the stuff that's on the channel. So that's the general thought at first. It's it's not all hammered out, but that's kind of what I'm thinking how I would like to do it. Something like that. If, I, if it's something really special, um, I'm going to put a bad, a bad Street Greatest together, and I'm going to put five versions of the Bad Street song on there. And uh, I'd like to do a, a new version um and i'm gonna go after snoop dog and see if he'll do the rap you know version of the song and then uh because i've got him on video walking into michael's interview at the hall of fame he's singing bad street and uh i'll get you that clip you know if you want to drop yeah, it awesome. in here yeah it's and awesome. uh he walks up to Michael's like, Bad Street, Atlanta, GA. And Michael's like, you know, and he's tall. Yeah. Um, dog. He's like, must be like 6'6 six, six or something. And uh, he walks in there singing and Michael starts singing along with him. And, you know, and he says, man, that's a badass song. That's a bad song. And then uh, he tells him one more time before he leaves. That's one of my, you know, he, he really liked the song. And I'm thinking, you know, I bet if he's offered that, I bet he would do it. Mm. I bet he, he's a big wrestling fan and uh, wouldn't take him forever to go in the studio and knock that out. So, uh, that version, um, another version, and I want to put a live version on there. I have a version we recorded with uh, Ricky Medlock from Leonard Skinnerd and uh, the bass player from the Atlanta Rhythm Section. And then I played drums and we recorded it in Eddie Offord's studio. And Eddie Offord is a famous uh, record producer. He produced the first five Yes albums. So this guy is from another planet, you know when it comes to producing. So got to work with him, man, and that was a treat. He bought a recording, he bought a movie theater and turned it into a recording studio. And uh, man, that was cool working in there with the acoustics, you know, especially for drums. Sounds, man, I chamber. So it was cool, you know. Rewinding back though, when did you first meet the Freebirds? How did you first meet the Freebirds? Because I know we're talking about Bad Street USA, and obviously you played a big part in that, and WWE Slam Jam. But going back, where and how did you end up meeting the fabulous Freebirds, Michael P.S. Hayes, Buddy Roberts, and Terry Bam Bam Gordy? I've never told this story on uh, anywhere. Um, hmm. But uh, it was kind of a weird thing. Um, me and my girlfriend happened to catch wrestling on Channel 39 in Dallas. They showed it at 11 in the morning, and then they showed it at 6 at night. And it went up against 60 Minutes and started beating 60 Minutes in the ratings. Wow. 
And uh, one Sunday, completely by accident, just it was on and we watched it. And then the next week, um, we watched it again. And then by the third week, we sat down and watched it. And and it was the Freebirds and the Von Ericks. It was early, you know, it was the end of 82, like a little bit past the beginning of 83. And uh, so I was impressed. And uh, we went to Sears to buy an air conditioner. And I asked her, I said, hey, do you want to go to that wrestling show? They're having a show 17,000 people in Fort Worth. And she said, yeah, if you want to go. And so I said, only if we can get something on the first. And so we went, they said they were sold out of tickets. And then we were walking out and the lady said, sir, yeah. I just found two tickets. I said, where are they? I thought she was going to say, you know, nosebleed on the third row. And I went sold. And so we went over there that night and what I saw just blew me away. I mean, the wrestling was just out of control. Um, that was the night that Michael Hayes got beat over the head with a 35 millimeter camera. You know, that big scar, that Frankenstein scar he's got in his forehead. He got that that night. This guy, he went and he made a mistake. I don't know anything about anything uh, back then because this is my first wrestling match ever. And I'm, uh, we're about two seats from where the wrestlers walked in and walked out. Both wrestlers came up the same aisle. So that was good. And also being on the third row, I could see everything. And uh, Michael had done something to Iceman and it got the fans really hot. And uh, a guy punched Michael as he was walking out of the ring, but the guy was on the second row and he punched him and Michael turned around and punched him back. Well, the guy's brother was sitting right next to him and he grabbed his camera and I'm going to try and show you because the camera was on a strap about that long. I'm get both my hands in here. Yeah. Strap about that long, and he swung it. He went, whoosh, whoosh. and then on the third thing, the camera hit Michael right there, and he had just wrestled, and dude, the blood just came pouring down his face. Way worse when the guys get jacked up in the ring, you know. I mean, this yep. was. I'd never seen blood like this. And uh, it took six or seven cops to hold this guy down. I mean, he was just like wired. And it took six, seven cops to get the handcuffs on him. And I don't know what 
happened to that guy when he got um luckily the freebirds and the von erics had already had their match you know they shot two weeks worth of television shows because it was such a big show so um that's the the last thing that we saw um but the six-man match with the Freebirds versus the Von Erichs was just incredible. And uh, so I went to the uh, uh, the area where they would normally sell, you know, the rock and roll memorabilia, you know, the T-shirts and the, you know, everything. They had nothing. And I, when I say nothing, they had black and pictures on crummy paper, some of it Xerox paper. And I think they were a dollar and two dollars. And they were mostly just of the Von Erics. And they weren't even good pictures. And of course, the people were buying almost everything they had, you know, sold out. And I looked at that and I went, oh, my God, there's, you know, three or four thousand people that couldn't get in that are just standing, you know, looking through the glass trying to see. And uh, so I went, I've got to get in contact with uh, Fritz and talk to these people about marketing because they're not doing any of it. And. Uh, the, the stuff that you saw in those magazines, no one had ever done that did at first. Even Vince McMahon didn't have a, uh, a department where he filled orders. He had, uh, I think, a Frisbee and two T-shirts that he sold, WWF T-shirts. And that was it. And so, you know... When I did that first ad, we had probably 10 items, you know, for sale. And uh, that was like really breaking barriers, which to me, it was just normal business. You know, hey, you got these guys, you market them, you make money. And I mean, I couldn't understand. Wrestling was 30 years behind in 1983. They were 30 years behind and the way they put stuff out the quality and the fact that they didn't market anything so uh yeah they were 30 years behind they were doing it like you would do it in the 50s the cheaper you can do it the better i mean and that is is the way they looked at stuff did not believe in putting money into something and then thinking we'll put out a nice color picture i mean at least the basics of what they were doing didn't believe in it and forget about advertising in magazines and you know you've got all those uh, that fandom because the first thing i did was i got a a, a list from channel 39 um, of all their uh, stations that they broadcast to. I mean, 
They were in uh, Australia. They were in Japan. Uh, they were in Israel. And uh, so I was getting orders from all over the world, you know, because the magazines went everywhere. And uh, the amount of money they left on the table was unbelievable. When I started advertising and doing, I mean, immediately the money just started coming in. People were ordering T-shirts, the 45, um, bandanas, buttons, you know, just whatever I put out there. People love that Bad Street USA logo. They still do. So um, I ended up, you know, sitting down and and going in the studio, uh, writing the song uh, with the guitar player, a uh, friend of mine, Larry Velez. And uh, me and Michael wrote the words up in my room one night, about 45 minutes. And uh, boom, there's Bad Street USA. And, uh, you know, that just became a phenomenon. And it's still, it was then. And so I have a lot of catching up to do as far as getting the word spread on the internet and let people know you can order it from the original person that started the whole thing back in 83. So that's, that's how I met them, you know, kind of happenstance luck, you know, had I not gone to the, that wrestling match that night, I don't know if I would have kept pursuing it, but that blew me away so much seeing all those people and seeing the money just left on the floor. You know, I just went, God, there's a lot of money here that could be made. And uh, that's what happened. You know, I got Michael um, along with Dave Wolf involved dave wolf was her manager we got michael a record deal with electra asylum records or seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars in 1984 almost 85 and uh had got the Freebirds a gig they were wrestling in the wwf and they'd been there about five weeks and I was out in Los Angeles and we'd worked out a deal with the WWF, um, with uh, MTV and Electra Asylum. And they were gonna, all three were gonna uh, promote the, the album that was gonna be coming out, Michael's rock and roll album. And it wasn't gonna be, you know, novelty, a rock and roll record. And uh, Michael, I was out there with Dave Wolf. Cindy was out there because she was doing some dates in California. And we were at her bungalow and we negotiated the final terms of the record deal. We got everything we wanted and $750,000 is a big record deal.
huge. It was a half a million dollar recording budget and a two hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollar promotional budget. Uh, that's a lot of money back in 1985. I mean, that can go a long way. This was not going to be a record they were going to screw around with. This record was getting a huge push. What and you, what do you think about his? What, what do you think about Michael singing? Did you like his singing? Michael singing was fine. I wrote Bad Street to where he could talk, sing it. Mm-hmm. You know, wrote it in a key. That it was easy to, you know, basically wrote a song that he could kind of, you know, because that's what needed to happen for him, you know. And after people heard the song and now everybody loves it and sings along with it, they're happy with it. Um, but he really started surprising me. I took him to just about every one of his vocal lessons and he was getting better and better. And I took him in the studio and got a lot of practice in there with really top flight musicians. And uh, I'm out in California and uh, we are signing the record contract the next day at noon. And uh, everything is done. And I get a phone call at four in the morning and it's Michael calling from Atlanta, which he should have been in New York or right in that area because they were wrestling with the WWF, all three of them. And Dave was managing them around the ring. That was part of the deal. Me and Dave were going to co-manage the Freebirds as far as really managing them. But Dave wanted to be involved in the wrestling side of it. I had no aspirations for that part. You know, I didn't want to be around the ring or even do anything around the ring. Anyway, he did. It's fine with me. Cindy Lauper was hotter than a firecracker back in those in those days. My magazine. And uh, so I get a call at four in the morning. It's Michael, and he's drunk. They were all drunk, and they quit the WWF that night. And Michael, unfortunately, about five days later, had a tour in Japan booked that he went and which was fine with the WWF. He was going to go do that. It was booked prior to them getting uh, booked up there. And uh, so I told Michael, I said, do you understand what you know? I said, do you know how hard it is to get a record deal for a band? I said, getting a record deal for a wrestler 
I mean, people were like looking at me like I was from another planet. You have a singing wrestler. Yeah. Right. What kind of shit is this, man? You know? And, uh, well, it turned out to be a, a big deal, but he said, uh, yeah, we all quit. And I said, well, you didn't. I said, because you are going to be in so much trouble because of the contracts that we've signed with people. You can't just quit. I said, you better get on the next plane back to New York. Don't even worry about Savannah. And you better go back. And if you have to get on your hands and knees and kiss Vince's feet, you better apologize and tell him you're back. Well, so he went back and he took Buddy with him and they did the rest of their dates. And then he had a month in Japan. Well, that was bad timing. Um, had that not happened, we might have been able to put things together. But he goes away for a month. And when he comes back, the record company, everybody's skittish. Who walks away from a million dollars? You know, yep. I mean, multi millions of dollars because, you know, three years later, the WWE novelty record and it went double platinum. And they put out a, just a joke, you know, record with Gene Okerlund singing on one song and the yep. parrot and the other guy singing. On, I mean, it was just, just, you know, bull crap. Pile driver. Yeah. Yeah. Pile driver. It should have been pile drived in the far deep earth. <laughs> um, but, you know, they took my idea and uh, they didn't get it right off the bat. They thought, oh, we got to get a wrestler and take him and record a song because uh, then Turner hired me a few years later. And uh, I said, there's no more wrestler singing. I'll write the song about the wrestler and then we will do the record. Uh, but I didn't want any participants. And that's what McMahon did for the next two or three albums. I know he did it for two. He, he grabbed wrestlers and had them sing, yep. which was, you know, people aren't going to want to hear that over and over and over. So, it was a huge mistake on Michael's part. They were going to put the strap on him. He was going to be the world champion and in front of Hulk Hogan, by the way. They were going to turn the Freebirds against him. And, you know, Terry and Gordy and uh, uh, Buddy were going to be the heels. And uh, Michael would have been a just a fantastic uh michael in the shape he was in he was only i think 24 at that point in time it was the perfect time and for him to do that uh he got back from japan and they went can we trust this guy again to put out 750 grand 
that's just what the record company was putting out. That wasn't MTV and all the other people. So, yeah, Quentin blew it. And uh, so I ended up financing the record myself and I put out the uh, Off the Streets album. And it did real well. We, we sold a bunch of copies of it and uh it, it made its money back and 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 a lot more and the bad street stuff kept selling and uh you know that's when i kept developing more merchandise and uh, so that's kind of the story of what happened with um do you still talk to Michael today? Or are you still friendly with yeah. Michael? Yeah, uh, just texted with him um, because they had five shows back to back to back to back. They did. Uh, yeah, WrestleMania Friday. weekend. Yeah. Yeah, they had Friday SmackDown and then they had uh, the Hall of Fame on f the next night, I think. And then they had uh, the. Uh, Saturday and Sunday WrestleMania. Yep. And then tonight they're wrestling at the American Airlines Center yep. for Monday Night Raw. So um, I texted him uh, day before yesterday. And I said, do you want to get to a friend of mine lives in the building right across from the double A where they're working? And I said, she's going to reserve a whole floor. And, uh, he said, man, normally I would do it, but he said, we just got off a five day deal. And, you know, his next thing after that is getting on the plane and going back home. And then he doesn't have that many days off there, you know? So, uh, yeah, yeah. We, we still talk. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, that had to go underneath the bridge uh, quickly um, because I had so much time and money and everything invested in him. I had to do something to recover from that record deal not going on through my entertainment attorney in Los Angeles. And he said, I think you should put a record out on your own. And then if you sell it for 1099, you can collect 1099, you know, right. and he was right, you know, but the other way would have been very right also, you know, Oh my God. That yeah. And that it, it would have made both of us millionaires because our record would have gone double platinum. I mean, theirs did. And it was junk. You know, we're going to put out a good record. So, but, uh, yeah, that was a, a punch to the gut that lasted. So that's, um, that's the way, that, but we continued on. And, um, I mean, that was in 1985. I mean, we worked together you know, all the way through 
Um, I think he went to the WWE in like 1994 or something, something like that. And then uh, that was when he went back up there, he was tied up doing all kinds of Doc Hendricks and different kind of stuff. And there wasn't really a lot we could do um, because they weren't pushing him as a solo wrestler or, you know, really anything else announcer. What are you going to do with that? And changing his name, took that name because, uh, yeah, Doc Hendricks, he took because of Doc Severinsen, the trumpet player on The Tonight Show, and Hendricks was because of Jimi Hendrix. And I was like, you couldn't take two names and put them together and ruin it any worse than that. (laughs) (laughs) I heard Doc Hendricks and I went, what? That doesn't sound cool. I mean, it it just came out cartoonish to me, you know. Definitely. I guess it kind of fit the time period, WWF. They were doing a lot of cartoony stuff. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. It probably fit in perfect then, you know, for them. And he had to cut his hair off, which was a big deal. But, uh, you know, for an announcer, hair. But, uh, so that was uh, just, that's a, a little bit of what happened as a result of the, uh, them, you know, him leaving the WWF. Um, boy, it would, wrestling would be different and it would be amazing to see what would have happened, you know. Uh, Oh my we had so much uh, velocity behind us and so much money and promotion and good ideas and the Freebirds uh, going heel against Michael. I think that would have been awesome, you know, and would have made him that much stronger of a baby face. No doubt about it. Yeah, but it didn't happen. Um, so what else do you, uh, road, do you want to run down? Well, how did fan, uh, the, uh, slam jam come along? Like, how, how did you start making that album? Because, you know, everyone remembers Steiner brothers song, sting song, but how did that come to fruition? Obviously they know you from bad street and working with Michael PS Hayes, but are they just like, Hey, we need an album. We want to copy WBF. I mean, how did that all come about? That happened. Um, a lot because of the bad street success and then the off the streets album. Um, so that was the really only person they could look at to see, well, who has put out a a rock and roll album, you know, and had a success, put it out on my own label. And, uh, so he and my attorney flew to uh, Atlanta. We met with the 
higher ups at uh, the uh, WCW. And uh, I wrote, um, I think I went there with like maybe four or five demo versions of uh, those songs. I think uh, Man Called Sting might have been one of them. And it might have been played on a, an acoustic guitar even. And then uh, uh, I think there was uh, three others or maybe four. And uh, so I took that and uh, they liked that. Uh, I, want, I want to make sure we get this deal. And so we went back a second time and i went back in the studio and recorded a stronger version of all those songs and i had don't step to ron on there and uh so i think we had like six of the 11 songs and i also uh got bob von jerchi who was the editor for world class and we got footage from uh turner and i actually rolled the music and had sting come out to the song i wrote you know for him with a couple of the other uh guys you know as uh darwin Knort, uh michael uh did words on several songs anyway um so we went back for the second meeting putting that video on and letting them see their guys actually come out to those songs i think that's what made them go hey this is it you know you can really feel and see what the guy looks like coming out to that when it's at edited together and, and done the right and so after that play i think they gave us a decision right then and there in the uh control room after it rolled you know they were i, I think we were real far because anybody else would have been starting just from, you know, their group, maybe their songwriter. I don't know. I don't know who the competition was, but we got the deal and, uh, you know, then went back and uh, they told us the other uh, five guys that they wanted songs for. And so we had to go in and, and write songs for those guys and they notified us after we negotiated the deal oh by the way we want this done and out for christmas sales oh. and this is in uh october and i still had to hire every musician um had to write five and then had to arrange those songs you know get the musicians in the studio i had my own 24 track studio at that point 
So that part of it was easy because I just had wall-to-wall studio time. Um, So we went in there and we just knocked them out. Pretty much almost every song on the first take, you know, because if if the drums don't make a mistake, you don't have to do the song over. So I knew the songs backwards. Um, I mean, I wrote on every one of them. So went in there, knocked them out, and then started doing the overdubs and working with all professional singers. You get through the process quicker. But still, that was a bitch. Uh, mixing all that, flying to Los Angeles and having it mastered, getting the album cover designed. I mean, getting the ads designed for the magazines and just uh, ads designed to go on uh, TV for Turner. I mean, uh, Turner sent a uh, guy down to mix the mixes for television. Real nice guy. Um And he was a blast to work with. And, uh, you know, it was a it was a joy working with Turner, man. Their checks always were on time. They they took care of business. And uh, I don't have anything bad to say about Turner. I mean, they did everything they promised uh mcmahon sued him and then we had to get into a a lawsuit deal there but uh i don't know if that's that interesting Um, what what was it over though why what was the lawsuit about you got a little garbled there what was the question what was the lawsuit about though What, what was it all for you still went a little electronic sounding on me. What was it all for? Is that yeah, the lawsuit. Said? Yeah. The lawsuit, um, I had to sue uh, Turner for breach of contract because we had worked out a deal where they would run 252 uh, uh, entrance uh, things and 350 returns from commercial where it'd come back from commercial and it would say slam up in all different colors. And, and that stuff was all happening until McMahon sued and McMahon set this up. He hired away um, one of the wrestlers, uh, Jake, the snake Roberts, and he had the language put into the contract knowing that if he got Jake the Snake out of there and got him to sign with him, that he could make our album almost null and void. And after uh, about two months, as my memory serves, two months, maybe three, the record was just taking off and I had a place in England that wanted 30,000 copies. I mean, things were going great. Man steps in and sues Turner, and then Turner stops promoting the album. They didn't stop using 
the songs, they use the songs for, you know, 10 years, 11 years on a few guys. But uh, as far as uh, doing what they had done before, we were going to do in-store promotions on the record. Uh, we were going to have Sting, if they were wrestling in uh, Fayetteville, Arkansas, we were going to have Sting and the Steiners show up at a record store and sign the record. And doing that, and they would have got paid for that, doing that all around the country. And what I just began to see with England, another smash that deal with the music, that wasn't a problem. Um, but the promotion of the album suffered huge because of the uh, McMahon getting involved again. I mean, he's been a, a big thorn in my side, put it lightly. <laughs> Why is he getting involved though? What is he suing about? He was suing, Oh, he he did that on purpose because he was wanted to squash the album. He was worried about, you know, he had two novelty albums. Now they had sold really well, but he even when he found out the name of our album, he went in the studio and recorded a song called Slam Jam. And tried to stop the uh, release of the record before it even came out. And uh, if you know anything about trademark law, you can't trademark a name of a song um, and then stop somebody else from calling their album that. And so that got thrown out. So he was after me and after Turner because he didn't want us getting a leg up. And sure enough, hiring that guy away, hiring Jake the Snake away and putting all that language in, which the attorneys didn't know, you know, one side wasn't talking to the other. And once he got that language in there, bang. Oh, his name cannot not appear on any promotion that they're doing. So that's why they slammed all everything shut. All the promotion stuff came to a halt. You know, like I said, they still use the songs, but all the other stuff that was uh, worked into what we were going to do, bang, that ended. So... We still sold a bunch of those also, but it took out a huge amount of what we would have sold. You what know? was more like financially lucrative, Bad Street or Slam Jam? Um, well, Bad Street was uh, overall. Um, which one would have been more lucrative at that I, I don't know. Had uh, Ben not uh, stopped it down with Turner, and I sued Turner and and won. You know, got a nice settlement. 
because they did, you know, you know, abuse the contract and they knew it, but it was that or deal with McMahon. And uh, we handled it like business people. I mean, we never got sideways with them. They, we worked out a, a deal that was amicable and, uh, but it was nothing like it would have been if we could have just, you know, gone hog wild and released that thing and done what we were going to do all over the world with it. Um, and McMahon knew that and he put, put a stop to that. And, uh, you know, I, I could go on and on about uh, things with McMahon, you know, but there's other things besides lawsuits. <laughs> yes. Yep. That are entertaining and exciting about stuff that happened around uh, the Bad Street, the Freebirds, the Slam Jam. The, you know, we did a concert at the Omni in 1987 in front of 19,000 people, and it was awesome. And I own the rights to that and I haven't released that. That's something else I'm going to put together on a package and, and put out. Um, the, and we did a live concert at the Sportatorium in 1988. And uh, that Michael brought Carrie Von Erich and Kevin Von Erich on stage and uh, Buddy had been drinking that night and Buddy came up and he was wrestling with Iceman back then. And uh, he came up on stage when Kevin and Kerry were up there and he grabbed a guitar and took a swing at Kerry and hit Michael with the guitar. And man, he cut Michael's head up here in the hair and just i've got video of it i mean he it's the hardest guitar hit you will ever hear this was a real guitar it wasn't any fossil wood or any kind of this was a 335 and uh bang it just about knocked him out. He wasn't out cold, but he was out on his feet. And uh, I'll get you a copy of that footage. Yeah, that's awesome. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> so that was at the second concert. The first concert, uh, Michael, uh, Terry, and Buddy, all three were on stage. And it was the first and only time we did Bad Street with all the Freebirds, and uh, I had a horn section, uh, double guitars, keyboards. It was about, I don't know, 11 or 12-piece band, and man, we rocked the place out. It was fun. I'm playing for a thousand people, you know? Um, that was a blast. And, um, and Michael, you said 
actually lived with you at one point too, right? You had mentioned to me. Yeah. That you were living uh, with him at one I mean, that's crazy. That's gotta be nutty. Yes. Very nutty. <laughs> and uh it became um synonymous with uh you know when a show was in town and of course every friday night they wrestled at the sportatorium which coming back from the sportatorium you go right past my house in irving and uh it was a pretty big uh scene for you know guys that were in town the people that were close to the birds would come over and hang. And uh, I know uh, Bruce Pritchard and uh, I'm not sure the other guy's name they have that podcast. They are talking about it. Uh, uh, Bruce was saying that was some of the most fun he had in wrestling was he said going over to Jimmy Papa's house. <laughs> uh, we wrestled in Dallas and having parties at his house afterwards. He goes, that's where I met uh, Bill Moody, per per Percy Pringle. And he said, man, those parties at Jimmy's house were just insane. So, um, yeah, I guess they live on and in infamy. Yeah, in, in lore and in... And a little mystique there. Yeah, it lives on in infamy forever. That's pretty cool, though. You know what I mean? Like, you, you're hanging out with all these legends. You know, all, all exactly. these leaders that have these stories. But that's crazy. Michael PSAs live with you. I mean, that's nuts. Yeah, Michael was there. I'd say about six or seven years he lived there. Wow. Quite a while. Yeah. Yeah. So you guys you guys are very, very close, obviously. Yeah. But you know what? I was very close to Terry also. I mean, me and Terry used to go play golf two, sometimes three times a week. So we had a, uh, our girlfriends were real tight and, uh, we had a, a really close relationship. Um, that was different you know i was kind of keeping my eye out for michael because i wanted to make sure that he didn't get in any trouble and uh you know if if he wanted to go to a strip joint and it was midnight and he just got back from a town well i had two choices i could either go with him and make sure nothing happened or I could let him go and then worry about him driving home, worry about him getting home. And, uh, you know, he was an investment to me. And uh, yeah. so believe it or not, you probably won't hear many guys say this, but, you know, I had my girlfriend right there who's just gorgeous, uh, an aerobics instructor. I mean, just beautiful. And 
I'd get up and leave her there and go hang with him from midnight until 2.30 in the morning and, you know, try to get back to the house as I quick, quickly as I could because I actually got sick of going to the strip joints and they treated us like a million bucks, you know? Hmm. Sorry, I'm, I'm trying to turn this keeps popping up and I don't know if I'm doing something wrong, but I can't seem to, okay, there it goes. So just as we, we hit the wind down, anyway, we'll, head towards, was... uh, we'll head towards the finish here, but you also, obviously we're talking about Bad Street. You did such a good job with that. Slam Jam. I mean, I still love that album. That Sting song is one of the best songs. I just love that song. Steiner Line is great. Dustin Rhodes' theme is great. Rick Rude, there's so many great themes. But you also did some photography work, right? Didn't you? You were saying about uh, taking some great pictures of David Von Erich and, and uh, you know, the different guys. Yes. Um, you know, I found myself going to the matches, um, especially at first, um, on Friday night, they wrestled in Dallas, which is about a 15 minute ride from my house in Irving, which is in between Dallas and Fort Worth. And I would go to the matches Friday night. I would go to the matches Monday night with Michael and just to, you know, it was new. I was checking everything out. And after I did that for a month, a month and a half, maybe, um, I had uh, one of the, I guess, George Napolitano approached me. And uh, we worked out a deal and I started shooting for his magazines and he didn't have to come down here or send somebody and let's face it dallas territory was red hot and they were running those star wars shows at the reunion arena every three months you know they're running some kind of show there fort worth and then uh i got hooked up with the japanese wrestling magazines and was shooting for them in addition to George's uh, seven magazines. So I figured, hey, if I'm gonna go to these shows, I might as well make some extra money, you know? And uh, so I shot around the ring for a long time and learned I shot in Japan and uh you know learned how to dodge wrestlers and dodge cameramen and you know stay out of the way it's it's a tough gig down there you know and when i did it in japan this is how many photographers there were when we would put our cameras up against the curtain or against the, uh, you know, whatever they call it, the, the draping that goes around. 
there was enough room exactly to put one camera guy every spot all the way around the ring. In other words, if my elbows went out, they touched another camera guy and that went all the way around the ring. That's how many photographers there were in Japan. So imagine wow. about eight to 10 guys on each side of each ring, you know, all four sides. And it was crazy. And, uh, and so I, I got an assignment one night um, to shoot. And, uh, and I didn't, I, I knew I had to shoot for my Japanese uh, magazine. I didn't know the ins and outs of it, um, but I showed up and this was unusual. We met up in Fritz von Erich's office previous to the uh, matches. The matches were, they were uh, shooting, you know, Channel 39 was there. They were shooting um, the shows um, and there were no photographers there that night. And uh, so went up in the office and Michael, um, I think had just got back from Japan, maybe a couple weeks earlier, could have been a three or four days. I can't remember, but Michael had the, the belt for Japan. I don't know which, you know, thing was all Japan or whatever, but he had the, the belt and the deal was they needed a picture of David holding that belt over his head. So in Japan, before he got there, they could start seeing, oh, Michael Hayes lost the belt to David in Dallas. Okay, so David's now the, I don't know if he was a Japanese champion or what it, the belt was exactly, but I'm sure it was a pretty big belt. Anyway, um, so I went down there and I shot all the other matches and then uh, and I was shooting for Japan and for George and then uh, that last match comes up and I decided to try this film that I had never used. It was 400 ASA, which is a higher ASA than normal. Normally you might use 100 or 200 in a flash. And this was such a high ASA, you could shoot it without a flash. But what it did was it created a look on the film, which was really cool. It created kind of a, um, not a sepia tone, but a, um, a just a, a little bit of a, a ghosty kind of look, uh, but, you know, clear. It's hard to describe. Um, but I, I'm, I'm glad I, I chose to use it that way, but it, it ended up being kind of a creepy thing because I shot the 
last match and, you know, had the strict instructions, make sure you get David with the thing over his head. Uh, so I look down at my camera. I'm shooting away, shooting. I look down at my camera and it's on 35. Well, you've got 36 when you're shooting film, you got 36 times you can shoot. And I went, oh boy, I don't have time to change into another roll of film. Plus, I've already shot this whole match in 400. I wanted to all match. Um, so I just have to wait until the match is over. And I knew it had to be fairly close to the end. Anyway, so I just hung out and waited. He rolls Michael up. Dave puts the belt above his head. You know, I turned the cameras up and down and and that was literally the last picture on the nice. on the last roll of film that I was going to use that night. And it was the last time Dave wrestled at the Sportatorium. You know, uh, and then he goes to Japan, uh, never wrestles over there. And uh, they find him dead in his room. And that picture that I took was on the newspapers in Tokyo. It was on other wrestling magazines. They must have worked it because people wanted something they could tie to David. And this was his last match, you know. Yeah. And uh, so that picture, which I don't even have a copy of because I, I loaned the magazine to the Freebirds and they used it at Texas Stadium and I never got the magazine back. Now, I'm sure I could, you know, I've got a friend in Japan. I'm sure I could write him and get a copy of it. Uh, and I'd like to see it again, frankly. But uh, that was really an interesting thing because, you know, David was talking to me. And he was like, Jimmy, I'll find you, you know. And I said, I'll be where you can see me. I said, uh, just, you know. Don't make eye contact with me. And I said, I'll get the shot. And uh, th that was just weird, man. You know, getting really close with him on that whole match and the whole finish and getting that. And then, you know, 72 hours or whatever, and boom, find out he's dead. And that's just like, oh, my God. So there are stories that we may have to do on a part two. Yeah. I haven't got into any stories of being on the road with the free birds, me and Michael uh, going to see David Lee Roth in Dallas. And then he was playing the very next night in little rock. And uh, we flew to little rock to see his show again. And, uh, You know, that's uh, something that uh, American Band put out. We're an American Band, and they say, yep. Sweet, Sweet Bonnie was doing her act. 
she had the whole show and that's a natural fact. Yep. Okay. Well, that's about Connie uh, doing favors. She was a groupie that took care of all these uh, going back to Grand Funk Railroad. She was probably 15 or 16 back then. Anyway, when we got to uh, uh, Arkansas, Little Rock, Sweet, Sweet Sweet Connie was at that show. So here we are hanging with David Lee Roth, and me and Michael are talking about, there's Sweet Sweet Connie over there from We're an American Band. <laughs> and then she was there. I mean, she... She was probably, I don't know, maybe 38 or something, but uh, she still went to a lot of shows and I think she brought her daughter with her or something. But that night was crazy. And when we have a, another uh, deal, I will tell you about some of the crazy stuff that happened when we got back to the hotel with David Lee Roth and what Michael was doing, it was just insane. Um, but I mean, there's, there's so much stuff like that. And uh, some of those stories wind around and they're very interesting and very telling. But uh, I think we got hopefully a, a, a good amount of stuff for tonight. Yeah, you're right. I think we definitely we're gonna have you back for part two. We'll talk about DLR. We'll talk more about the Freebirds. We'll talk uh, about some more stuff. But before you know, we let you go. Where can everybody find you? Do you do social media? Do you have like uh, a place where people can find you and, and you know reach out or just check to see what you're up? I've got. Uh, if you go to Bad Street USA on Facebook, if you go to Bad Street USA on. Uh, most things I have Bad Street USA. Okay. Um, and I have Bad Street USA store, just all one, you know, dot com. That is under construction. And hopefully, when will this air? Uh, should be next week. Okay. I don't know if I'll have it up by then, but that I'm paying 40 bucks a month for it. It's been under construction for three months and hopefully I'll have it. Hopefully in the next couple weeks, I'll, I'll get it finished. The right guy stepped in. I could have it done in a couple nights because I've already got the pages already finished. I just have to get them loaded and locked in. And it's not that difficult anymore. So um, that's that's where we are as far as that goes. Um, I have the name trademarked. And so... You know, most people don't jack with the Bad Street USA, but people have sold the shit out of my Bad Street t-shirts for years and some for a year and some for 
there's new places popping up all the time but uh i've got an attorney and we're going to go after those people and they're going to have to pay back you know monies on what they did and if they want to continue selling it they're going to have to sell my official bad street logo not one that's sloppy and i don't know what the problem is but uh i want if people are wearing bad street shirts i want them wearing this is you know an official bad street usa shirt and only my shirts i don't know if i'm in the right camera position but can you see on the back yep yeah only my shirts will say that it will only be printed on the front and uh i do sell shirts out of chicago out of that pro wrestling tees um so people can order it right now from there um but uh i hope to have this up pretty damn soon where they can order it you know straight from me and and i'm going to put up a lot of memorabilia stuff you know from the old days and uh special shirts that you can't get you know anywhere else and uh i've got probably close to 2000 pictures that i have never put up for sale i've got posters i've got signed stuff uh the boots that michael wore in the six-man battles they still have blood on them you know i've got all kinds of neat stuff that i'm gonna i'm gonna make this website really special i want to have a uh vip club where you can join the website and like i was telling you like for 2.99 a month you join the uh uh, VIP club and you go upstairs and door opens and boom you walk in there and you get to see some special stuff you know pictures that we won't just show anywhere video things that you know like parties <laughs> we had can't show all of the parties and all what happened but just some stuff that would make the VIP room really worth, you know, going into. So that's just a little bit of ideas. When it comes to marketing stuff, man, that's my favorite thing to do. I love uh, putting my stuff out there, but then I, I like putting it out there and then really making a neat twist where it's, I don't sell people crap. I want to sell people something that I would want like these shirts it cost me five dollars and fifty cents to put this on the back and so i lose a dollar on every shirt i sell up there just because i insist on having that on the back but i don't care you know i'm not going to get rich selling shirts through them anyway so um i just always have really prided myself on selling stuff to the fans that 
it's something I would want to own, you know. You can't get up there right now. We're on the phone and on the video with John. <laughs> and John didn't even know you. And there's John. Hey, buddy. This is Sunshine. Hey. What's up, buddy? And that's another deep valley I could get into. I dated Sunshine. I don't know how familiar you are with world class, but. Yeah. Yeah. She was the valet in world class. Yeah. I dated her for about a year and a half and met her over at the Freebirds one night. And boy, that, that's man, I completely forgot about that. We need to do a deep dive one night yeah. Yep. and, and do nothing, but uh, we'll get together on the phone in advance and we'll pick like five things and I'll just do deep dives yeah. on, you know, like a sunshine deep, and a, a free bird road deep dive and you know uh hey it's stuff that's never been out there and then i've got pictures to link up with all this stuff you know pictures on the road with i went on the road with her and chris adams um pictures on the road with you know, Garvin and the birds and uh, just a little bit of everything. I mean, when I go in and uh, scan 15 to 2,000 pictures that I took that have never been released and then all the video footage and film footage it's going to be quite a package and uh i think it's going to be stuff that people are going to be really into because it's it's never been discussed before i want to i want to see what kind of reaction you get from this but uh if you need uh you know if you need a, a like a PNG of the Bad Street logo, or I, you know, the Bad Street video is on uh, YouTube, and the one that should be used off there is not the WWE uh, because they. That's what I sued him over. He just took my video and. And stamped the W on it and put it on a triumph and tragedy, the Von Erics versus the Freebirds, and and then on the extra disc, uh, Bad Street USA video. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. So that that whole Vince uh, saga is just a that's unbelievable, and it's still going on. I mean, we, I sued him and we settled and all that, but he's doing the same shit he did to me before. He's doing it again. He's using my Slam Jam songs. And uh, so it's just another mess of stuff I have to get into where I'm wanting to just look forward and work on all this new stuff. I can't neglect the, the stuff that he's using now illegally. 
and lawsuits drag on on forever and then i don't want to sue him again i want him to settle with me somehow so that's just a whole nother level of working with attorneys out in la and then all that um i uh i got his attorney so upset at me now this is supposed to be an attorney that uh is representing vince mcmahon and he's got his head of publishing and his music department sitting right next to him and i i only agreed to have this sit down with him there wasn't a mediator there and uh we sat down we'd been there about an hour and i got out the uh the the off the streets um cd i think it was the cd and uh something kind of like this i got this out And that this is the back of the, so I set these two up and then I had a cassette copy of each, each one. And I sat there and I went through, I reverse engineered what they had done to me. This attorney. He came up this with this way of stealing my songs. They stole, including Bad Street, every one of my songs and put Stephanie Music as the publisher and the guy Jim Johnston that write used to write their songs. Yep. Put his name and Michael's name on the songs as the songwriters. Not me and did he spaced it about uh eight weeks apart he would steal two songs and then wait about eight 12 weeks and steal two more and so uh i just had this idea and the guy has like 2200 songs on bmi so um i put the steiner brothers in first because i had stopped Ionerized. Uh, I hit on that, but I didn't know the name they used because they didn't name these songs necessarily the same name because they were just interested in using the music and collecting all the money. And so it wasn't that easy just because I found the Steiners. I mean, it was another couple of nights before I found the next song. And then the same thing. It took me probably i don't know a month before i located all of them and i printed them out off bmi and i set that stuff up and i went through his whole thing saying yeah you spaced everything about eight to 12 weeks apart you did two songs at a time you changed the name to stephanie music publishing and then jim 
Johnston and Mike, maybe Darwin's name was on there. And uh, this guy was face was getting red and the veins were starting to pop out in his neck. And he, he looked like he had been hitting the sauce and working out, but he was maybe an inch and a half taller than me, but he was getting, you know, pretty big. And man, he was, I'm surprised smoke was not coming out of his ears. And I asked him to hand me a, uh, a binder like, like one of these, because there was something in it I wanted to look at. And I had just finished my whole dossier on how they ripped me off. And this guy did supposedly a professional. And I had my attorney from Los Angeles who had, you know, started a record label called Solar Records and sold it for millions and millions and millions of dollars. And he was my attorney sitting in for me. And the guy threw the binder across the table, the big conference table, threw it across the table at my face. And like an idiot, I put my hand up and caught it. I mean, I wish I just would have let the damn thing hit me in the eye or in the nose or wherever, because that would have been the end of those negotiations. You know, me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I, yeah. I caught it. And, uh, of course we took a quick recess and me and my attorney went to the bathroom and I said, you saw that. I mean, uh, he threw that at me. Right. I mean, he said, Oh, absolutely. I said, have you ever seen anything like that? He said, no, never. He said, that is so unprofessional to do that in this setting. He said, that's unbelievable. You got that guy so hot, you know, just by the words, he couldn't believe you figured out his system. And, right. uh, you know, that story, I can't necessarily tell, um, at least not yet, you know, maybe a year from now they have to deal with them on all this peacock stuff they're playing all that slam jam stuff as they sold it to peacock but i'm not getting a dime and i should be getting paid for every time those songs are used which is right now there's probably hundreds of them being played all over the world yep but nbc peacock owns i think canada and all the united states but uh mcmahon still owns south america and europe and all that but i'm not getting paid for any of it so another thing on the list of things to do tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, oh, yeah. But, so uh, uh, but jimmy thank you so much uh, for all the time though we we appreciate it and obviously part two we got a lot to discuss for a part two
Oh, dude, part ten if if you if you want to do, but uh, part two we will frame it out, um, because I think we did a good job with you know bringing people up to date on how things were kind of put together, you know, but uh, the next one we can purposely go in with uh, having stories like the sunshine and that stuff's never been told and uh, what happened the day of that video shoot is absolutely that'll uh, curl your hair man it, it it was crazy crazy day um way beyond anything you might think happened and uh i'll leave it at that but uh boy oh yeah that's uh, you should make a stuff that happened with her and uh i think enough times passed now where that story could be told you know yeah uh, i don't like to throw anybody under the bus but uh shit i'm telling the truth it happened um and uh it's very juicy Jimmy, thank you so much for all the time. Appreciate it. You are welcome. This has been a John Paz Power Trip production in conjunction with the two-man power trip of wrestling. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at two-man power trip. You can check us out on Facebook. You can subscribe on YouTube. You can go to patreon.com slash TMPT Empire to become a patron. And also check out the website tmptempire.com and buy a shirt at prowrestlingtees.com. Two-man power trip where the power lies, brother.